I thought you had already done so, but yes, it does work better, doesn't it? Splendid. It's nice to see everyone rested in another bright and new Virginian morning. We're reminded of the words of Lamentations, new every morning is thy faithfulness. And this morning, of course, as we come not only to open the word that we might dive into the testimony, but also to remember our Lord and our King, we are thankful to the Father that he has given us the privilege of assembling in this way. Now, this morning, in our study for this first session then, you'll remember that when we finished our considerations last night, we saw then that we now have three principles that govern the activities and the the living, the life of brothers and sisters as they work together in the service of the truth. And that those three key things, remember, are equality of mind, hierarchy of order, and diversity of attribute. But you see, it's not till we come to ecclesial life that we have the actual area for the outworking of those principles. Ecclesial life is the arena for our mutual activity in the Father's service. It's in the ecclesia, brothers and sisters, that we come together as both brother and sister, man and woman, male and female, that we might both meet together and learn how best to balance those three great principles. We want to appreciate that equality. We want to respect that hierarchy. We want to celebrate that diversity. And I think that one of the great things about this is that these three ideas are there to guard each other. The three principles, I believe, that are enunciated in the book of Genesis from the foundation of the world are there that they might guard each other from abuse, as it were, so that no one of those assumes prominence. It's so easy in our lives for this aspect or that to go a little too far. So they're counterbalanced. And it's in the area of ecclesial life that we... You see, everything's a theory till then, isn't it? We can discuss these things at theoretical level, but it's not till we start to live out the principles of the truth in the arena of ecclesial life that we will really feel the force and the power of these three things being balanced up together. And ecclesial life gives us the opportunity that we might feel the real force and power of those things. Now, for those of you who have um, heard my particular session on core values in the Ecclesia, you'll remember that we mentioned in that study that there are five particular aspects of ecclesial life. There are matters of worship, matters of witness, matters of order, matters of learning, and matters of service. And we believe that each of those aspects of ecclesial life can be documented that they relate to apostolic practice and teaching, that these are the five key aspects into which all ecclesial activity ultimately can be resolved. And the point of our studies, therefore, is to see how that both the man and the woman will make contribution to those areas of ecclesial life, but they will do so from two different perspectives. So the man will make a contribution in all five key areas, but from the perspective of leadership and provision. And it is expected of sisters that they will make a contribution to ecclesial life, to the body of Christ, but from the perspective of support and nurture. And you'll remember that we looked yesterday in our final study at those judgment conditions of Genesis chapter 3, where in the very outworking of the responsibility of the man and the woman, I don't think the focus of the woman is on simply bearing children, and I don't think the focus of the man is on sweating in the garden. I think that those two things in Genesis are symbolic of two whole spirits. That for the woman, the spirit is of that overwhelming maternal instinct that is found in nurture and support in every aspect of life. And for the man, that activity in the garden, as it were, is really the principle of leadership and provision. Provision for the household. So in the ecclesia, the man provides the bread. 
and the woman dispenses those benefits in the spirit of nurture. Now, you'll notice that we've chosen those words carefully, that man has the responsibility of leadership and provision and woman the privilege of support and nurture. And I think, by the way, it is important that we choose our words carefully because I think there have been some descriptions in the brotherhood that have circulated in the past concerning the role of men and women that have not been, shall we say, either accurate or helpful. For example, on occasions, one will hear the role of men and women described respectively as that which is positive and negative. Most sisters prefer not to be cast in that role. Or that which is active and passive. Ask any sister with three little tiny tots running around and, and a fourth on her hip whether she's passive. And she would feel that, that those descriptions are not particularly helpful. Or maybe even the terms primary and secondary. So these words are chosen with care because I think that they are the spirit of the teaching of Genesis 1 to 3, that man is for leadership and provision, that woman is for support and nurture, and moreover, as we saw last night, that they have both been blessed with the very attributes, the very gifts of God that will help them to perform those roles. So we are, we, we are all expected to be busy and active in ecclesial life, but we come to those responsibilities simply from a different perspective. You know, there are two extremes that we face in the world today, aren't there? One is the spirit of woman's liberation. And the thing that concerns me about woman's liberation is that it debases all that is wonderful and good in womankind. The fact that she has been endowed with that collection of virtues that is unique to her species is denigrated by the world as being useless and tawdry and unimportant. Go out and make a career for yourself. What do you want all this homemaking stuff for? And yet those virtues of sympathy and care, of grace, of tenderness, of solicitude, of practical wisdom, these are the very things that make women special and noble and useful. And we ought never to underestimate the beauty of what the Father has done. And we want our young ladies to grow up to be thankful that they are ladies and thankful that they've been blessed with those divine virtues and thankful to have the chance to outwork them in their family life, in their marriage life, in their ecclesial life. And not to worry about, the world, about what the world might say or not say or think or not think because it's only the divine standard that we're looking for and wanting to aspire to. And what's the other extreme from woman's liberation on one side? Well, of course, the other side is really male chauvinism, isn't it? And, and there, are, there are touches of that from time to time in ecclesial life. Maybe it's a reaction, I don't know. But there is a danger of an opposite extreme. And yet what we really want are men who've learnt the true spirit of leadership and provision. There are lots of men who'd love to be leader, but not so many who are good at providing. Providing the food for the household, that the household might be strengthened and nourished. And those principles of, of honour and integrity, which, which stand for that which is really good in mankind, need to be appreciated by our brethren. The world extols brute strength. But that which is truly honourable in a man are the virtues that we see in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to forget about what the world says concerning role models and to say, no, what we, what we want to focus on is what the truth tells us and what the Bible tells us. We want to avoid those opposite extremes and come back to the teaching of Genesis and to the spirit here of the foundation of the world. Just think about those five key areas, by the way, just for a moment, in terms of the real crucial aspects of ecclesial life. Now, take, for example, matters of worship. So, so what are the key aspects of worship? Well, firstly, that we come before the Father in spirit and in truth. Can both the male and the female do that? Yes. That we offer praise from the heart. 
that we absorb divine principles, that we ascend to the Father in our prayers, that we learn to confess sin, that we draw near in fellowship. Is there any difference here between male and female in terms of the essence of what worship's really about? Can we have a look at the first of Corinthians chapter 11, by the way, and the 28th verse? Do you remember that section of the first of Corinthians 11, which deals with the breaking of bread? And, and just an interesting comment about one of the little words that's found here, because the apostles always care, the apostle is careful with the words he uses, you see. Remember how we said yesterday that in these passages concerning the role of the man and the woman in ecclesial life, the first of Corinthians 11, the first of Corinthians 14, Galatians chapter, chapter 3, and the first of Timothy chapter 2, the apostles always careful to use the right words that really mean male and female. So he uses an earth from, uh, from andros and guner meaning literally the male and the female. And, and yet smack in the middle of the first of Corinthians 11, he says this, verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. You know, that word man in verse 28 is the word anthropos. I don't know if you know what anthropos is, but anthropology is the study of the human species. And it doesn't relate to either a man or to a woman. It embraces both male and female in the extent and breadth of its meaning. Maybe it would be better to say, when a, let a person examine themselves, verse 28. Because when we finally come to the table, brothers and sisters, and we come before our God, and we open our hearts to make confession of sin, and to examine ourselves, whether we, 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 whether we be walking in the way of truth or no, we come to the Father as individuals, and both the brother and the sister come equally, that they might make that confession. Let a person, an anthropos, examine themselves. And there's no difference here between male and female. This is not just for men. This is for the brother and the sister. So when it comes to matters of worship, oh yes, there might be a brother who's chairing the meeting and a brother who's leading by way of exhortation, but the real essence of worship, ascending into the presence of the Father, is the privilege of us all, brothers and sisters. And sisters ought never to feel that they haven't got a part to play. Of course they have. What about matters of witness as far as the truth is concerned? Our proclamation activities. What's the essential spirit of witness? A desire to proclaim the truth. Is that exclusive to men? No, it's not. What about personal witness in life? What about discussion on the word? What about the ability to talk to people about the truth? What about the desire to be involved in missionary activity? Is this the sole prerogative of brethren, of brothers in the ecclesia? The answer is no, of course it's not. The spirit that leads us to bring forth the purpose of God and declare it to others is a responsibility that belongs to brother and sister alike in our contribution to ecclesial life. We both make contribution, but we do so from a different perspective. What about matters of order? Well, matters of order relate to the activities of the ecclesia and the arrangements of the ecclesia. What about the preparedness to mutually consent to one another for the good of the whole, the enthusiasm to organise, the commitment to see things achieved and accomplished and fulfilled in ecclesial life, and that whatever is done is done to the very best of our abilities? Well, that's our combined responsibility, isn't it? Both brother and sister alike ought to strive for the very excellence of endeavour that will make it a whole burnt offering to the Father in that which they do in the administration of the ecclesia. And we all make contribution. In matters of learning, well, of course, to meditate on the word, 
to give ourselves to the daily reading of the book of life, to aspects of personal study. These are privileges that we all have because we've all been given a mind to receive and understand divine principles. This is not the sole prerogative of brothers. Sometimes brethren feel or brothers feel that they alone do study because they stand up to speak. Bible study's got nothing to do with speaking, has it, brothers and sisters? Bible study's all about absorbing the divine mind that we might know the Father because he is supreme and every brother and every sister must know him. If our Bible margins are filled with facts, then our lives will not be transformed. Unless what we have in our Bible margins helps us to live the truth, then there is no point to our study. And every brother and every sister has been blessed with the mind that will receive, absorb, and understand divine principles. And finally, in matters of service, we all have the opportunity to show that spirit of hospitality, of care, of succor, of the giving of counsel and advice, of the perception to see need and the willingness to help. These are all virtues that we all make contribution to in ecclesial life, that we nourish one another so that not, not one single person shall be lost in the ecclesial house or outside the ecclesial house. And both the male and the female make their respective contributions in these particular areas. So, you see, I think that therefore we, we, we ought to feel encouraged, brothers and sisters, that in ecclesial life there's opportunity for everyone to contribute, that the essence of the truth is something that embraces both the man and the woman as we learn to work together in ecclesial life to balance up those three things of equality, hierarchy and diversity. And so I think that it's a good idea for brothers and sisters to actually have role models that will help them to fulfill their particular responsibilities in the truth. Role models. And you see, I'm keen on this because I think there are so many Bible characters that form wonderful examples for a brother or a sister to model their lives on. I've got a bit of a sort of pet theory about this, you see. I feel that in the biblical record that we have good evidence to show that many brothers and sisters, even in Bible times, had role models people that they looked up to in the scriptural record and patterned their lives on. I think that Elijah had a hero. And I think I know who his hero was. I think that Mary had a heroine and I think I know who her heroine was. I think that Jonah had a champion and I think I know who Jonah's champion was. I think that Caleb modelled himself on a particular man and I know who that man was. I think that Hezekiah patterned himself on a particular person and I think I know who his role model was. So I think the idea of role models from Scripture is a wonderful thing for us to take up ourselves and of course it's true that our greatest role model should be the Lord himself. But there are other characters that may be helpful. So, so why shouldn't it be that a brother or a sister should say, well, well who could we look at, who could we study that, that might help us to fulfill our particular contribution to ecclesial life, be we a brother or a sister? And, and there's so many of them, isn't there, when we stop and look and think. So for a man, the integrity of Joseph, the story of Gideon, the bravery of Jonathan, the victory of David, the crisis of Hezekiah, the prayer of Daniel, the story of Jonah, the denial of Peter, the witness of Stephen, the voyage of Paul, the example of Timothy, the wisdom of John. This is just a handful of so many examples of, that a brother could study to inspire him in his service of the truth. But there's no less examples as far as sisters are concerned. What about the faith of Rahab and the parable of Ruth? 
and the prayer of Hannah and the wisdom of Abigail and the beauty of Esther and the virtuous woman and the qualities of the bride and the song of Mary and the love of Mary Magdalene and the hospitality of Lydia and the allegory of Sarah and Hagar and the letter to Kyria. There's no shortage of examples, brothers and sisters, for us to choose from, for us to use in our personal development in the truth be we a brother or a sister, that we might be inspired to make our respective contributions to ecclesial life. And I think that those are very good studies for people to undertake. Amongst all the other things that we might study in the Word, what about a character that really inspires and moves you by the power and the goodness of their example? Well, I think we should be doing that. That we should be trying to study those people and to come to understand them and to appreciate them. So what we're, going to, what we're going to do now in the balance of this session is I just want to comment briefly, therefore, on the contribution of brethren. Sorry, I, I shouldn't keep saying that word, should I? Because the word brethren is, well, it's a generic word that embraces both brother and sister. And that is, by the way, how we should understand it. The word brethren is a term that is, that is covering both the male and the female. So if we want to talk about males in the meeting, we should talk about brothers and sisters, but not brethren and sisters. Right? You must never say that because, because that's confusing. The word brethren already includes sisters. Is that quite clear, brethren? So, so, so let's talk now for a few moments about the contribution of the brothers into ecclesial life in the spirit of leadership and provision and then the contribution of sisters into ecclesial life in the spirit of support and nurture. So let's take the brethren just for a moment. And I'm not going to comment on every single activity of, of ecclesial life. I'm just going to touch on one or two maybe and spend a little more time in detail. Take the presiding brother. No, take arranging brethren. The first of Timothy and chapter 5. So the spirit of arranging brethren. Now in the first of Timothy chapter 5 we're told this concerning the responsibilities of brethren in ecclesial life. It says in the first of Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honour, especially they who labour in the word and doctrine. And we've said before, but I think it's a good idea to, to mention it again here, the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the labourer is worthy of his reward. And sometimes I think we separate in verse 17 the elders that rule well from those that labour in the word. But that's not what, what verse 17 says. It says the elders that rule well because they labour in the word, especially those who labour in the word. So one of the great tests for arranging brethren is, have they learned to move beyond the mundane in their arranging brethren's, arranging brothers' meetings to those principles of leadership and provision for the ecclesia? So the focus of, of the arranging, actually I should use the word arranging brethren because it is common amongst us. So, so should the arranging brethren deal with those administrative details that by the way will always be there endlessly in full supply or are they able to move above and beyond those things to focus on the growth of the ecclesia? Well they've got to. And one of the tests, I think, of ecclesial life is that when a problem comes up in the, in the arranging meeting, is there a Bible open? In fact, are all the Bibles open that they might focus on Bible solutions? Is there a scriptural discussion of issues and a coming together of a scriptural conclusion? So that when the matter is brought back to the ecclesia, that the arranging brethren are able to say, well, well, this is what the recommendation is of the arranging brethren, and it's for this reason, because we believe that this is what the Bible says. You know what that is? That's providing bread to the household. 
Bread to the household doesn't just come by way of exhortation or Bible class. Bread for the household comes by way of spiritual leadership, by that shepherding responsibility by which the ecclesia grows and is nourished. So I think one of the things that arranging brethren need to think about is, well, what is their focus? Are they focused on administration or on shepherding? If they want the ecclesia to grow, they must A, be united on their core values, and then secondly, focus on those shepherding principles that will lead to spiritual growth amongst the ecclesia as a whole. That's leadership and provision. That's their responsibility. That's what they've been asked to do. That's their role from the days of of Genesis. So every activity that is performed by brothers should be with that focus and that idea. Let me just give two examples then of things that ought to be done by by the brothers. And I'm only going to give you two illustrations of each because they are, if you like, representative of a spirit. Now, come and have a look at the matter of prayers. Now, we've already looked at this reference, but let's do so again. In the first of Timothy chapter 2, We're told about the fact that it is the responsibility of the brothers to give the prayers, to offer the prayers in the ecclesia. And there was a reason for that. You'll remember that in the first of Timothy, chapter 2, verse 8, that the apostle says, I will therefore that the men, and so this time it's not Anthropos, it's not Adelphos, it's the males, that they in every place offer the prayers, lifting up holy hands. So why should they offer the prayers? Because it is the spirit of leadership. Well, if it is, brothers and sisters, well then brothers have got to learn to, to fulfill that work of leadership. It's no good for a brother to say, oh yes, we offer the prayers. They've got to show the spirit of leadership and provision in those prayers because they give the public prayers for the assembly. Now, let me give you a couple of illustrations. Firstly, has the brother focused on the purpose of the prayer? Sometimes brothers are asked to give a prayer for something and the funny thing is you, that you all stand and, and the prayer begins and as the prayer develops it, it seems strange but the only thing that the brother hasn't prayed for is the one thing that he's been asked to do. Have you ever had, it's, it's one of the terrible things that you really hope that will never happen to you as a chairman of a memorial meeting is that you've asked a brother to give thanks for the bread and to find that the one thing that the brother doesn't do is to give thanks for the bread. What does the chairman do? Were such an occasion to occur? Now you see, that's not the spirit of leadership. And have you ever heard a prayer for the bread or for the wine that says, we thank thee for the bread because it represents the body of Christ? Now there's nothing wrong with that, is there, by the way? Absolutely nothing wrong with that statement. But do you know a Sunday school scholar could tell you that much about the bread. What does the bread really represent? Why does it have to be broken? And why is the bread different to the wine? Why do we have two emblems? Are they really the same thing or are they different? Sometimes you hear prayers for the bread and prayers for the wine and they sound so similar you wonder why we've got two emblems. Well they are different and they have quite different meanings. And they teach us different things that we must do. But have the brethren, have the brothers shown the spirit of leadership in their prayers that the the congregation might understand the difference? Or do they simply use a set of words that are repeated over the years which really betoken the fact that they know precious little about the emblems? That's not the spirit of leadership and it's not the spirit of provision for the household. So if brothers are to accept the responsibility of leadership in the matter of public prayers, well then they've got to learn to live up to that responsibility. 
So if a brother is asked to give a prayer for the emblems and doesn't really understand the bread and the wine, then maybe one of the very first studies that he should do personally is to come to understand the emblems so he can pray properly for them so that when he lifts up his voice at the end of that prayer, people say, Amen and Amen because their thinking has been lifted to new heights because in that prayer was the spirit of leadership and provision. It's all very well for brothers to know that that is their duty and their privilege. It's quite another thing to live up to the responsibility. What about a prayer at the end of a memorial meeting? Have you ever heard a prayer, brothers and sisters, at the end of a meeting where you wondered whether the brother had been at the meeting? That the whole spirit of the exhortation and the hymns and the readings had all focused on one great central theme which the brother giving the closing prayer utterly and absolutely missed in his closing prayer. And you think, where was he? He's praying on behalf of all. He's meant to bring that whole meeting to a a suitable conclusion, to lift the, the thoughts and the minds and the hearts of all their presence so that they can say amen to what he says. Is he really showing the spirit of leadership in his prayers and spiritual provision with what he says? You know, brothers, it's an honor to pray on behalf of the community but it's also a responsibility. Doorkeepers. Oh, what a duty. Now, why have we selected doorkeepers? Because it's an apparently mundane thing. Now, come and have a look at the first of Chronicles chapter 9. Because, you see, even the mundane things, even what appear to be the lesser responsibilities in ecclesial life, well, it's all what you make of them. It's all to do with the spirit with which we serve in the truth. Now, come and have a look at the first of, of uh, Chronicles, sorry, the first of Chronicles chapter 9, because here's the spirit of the doorkeepers of old, and it's the spirit that those who guard the door, even of the ecclesia, should be showing in the same way. The spirit of leadership and provision. No matter what the duty of a brother is, that should be the spirit with which he fulfills his function. Now we're told this in the first of Chronicles 9 and verse 19. And Shalom, the son of Korah, the son of Ebiasaph, the son of Korah and his brethren of the house of his father, the Korahites, were over the service, the work of the service, keepers of the thresholds of the tabernacle. And their fathers, being over the hosts of Yahweh, were keepers of the entry. Verse 21, And Zechariah the son of Meshelamiah was porter of the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Verse 23, So they and their children had the oversight of the gates of the house of the Lord, the house of the tabernacle by wards. And so we're told in verse 27, and these, these doorkeepers of old, they lodged round about the house of God because the charge was upon them and the opening thereof every morning pertained to them. You see, it was a fantastic spirit of the doorkeepers of old. They weren't just doorkeepers, brothers and sisters. They were the guardians of the sanctuary. And that's how they saw themselves. That they were the champions of the holiness of God's place. And that everything they did was so that the sanctity of the Father might be preserved. They didn't just open the door in the morning. They guarded the sanctuary and the holiness of God's sanctuary. And they lived there. They lived around that house because they were so committed to that responsibility. So now do our doorkeepers exercise their role in the ecclesia in the spirit of leadership and provision? I think that a good doorkeeper arrives 30 minutes before a meeting begins. And in the 30 minutes before the meeting begins, what does the doorkeeper do? Well, you say he opens the doors. Is that all he does? A good doorkeeper who's showing the spirit of leadership and provision not only opens the gates of the premises and the doors of the tabernacle, but also he says now, Do the windows need to be open or closed this day? 
Is the hall hot or cold? Are there fans that need to be put, put on or heaters that need to be put on? Is there a glass of water for the speaker? Are the seats there in order as they should be? And that everything about the spirit of that doorkeeper is that he is on that day the guardian of the sanctuary of God and that everything must be done decently and in order so that everything shall be done to the very best of his ability. Has he thought about all those things or did he really just think that turning a key was the responsibility of the doorkeeper? Is that leadership and provision? There are other great responsibilities to doorkeepers. Do you know that there are four key things that doorkeepers are responsible for after the spirit of these doorkeepers of old? The first is the welcome. There's nothing like a doorkeeper at the door of the house who has a warm smile and a firm handshake. And that handshake, by the way, should be extended to both brothers and sisters alike to say welcome to the house of the Lord this day. And especially when you're a visitor, there's nothing like a doorkeeper who's there to greet you and to make you feel that you are truly welcome to come into the sanctuary of God. And the second responsibility that doorkeepers have is the question of fellowship. Who is there this day? And if they are a visitor, do they have an ecclesial letter of introduction? And if they don't have an ecclesial letter of introduction, then what is to be done to determine their status? In our particular ecclesia, we have a system that may be similar in other places, I don't know, but we have a little card. So that if we have a visitor from another place and we don't know who they are or where they're from, we say, well, that's fine. Could you just write on the back your, your name and the name of your ecclesia for us so that we know we've got it spelt right and pronounced properly? The doorkeeper has arrived. I thank you kindly. And on the back of that card, it says what our basis of fellowship is and that we welcome that person to meet with us on that basis of fellowship this day so that if there's some uncertainty, we have devolved responsibility onto that person. But there are fellowship responsibilities at the door of the tabernacle. And what about absences? Has the doorkeeper noticed that his brother so-and-so walks in through the door that his wife's not there that day? Is she well? Is she sick? Is she back looking after a child? Has he noticed that? Has he got down the list of those people that are not present that day? We do in our ecclesia because we want to announce them. You think announce them? Announce those who aren't there? Yes. Not so that we can criticise their absence, but so we can pray for those in need in the prayer that we offer at the beginning of our service. We want to know who's not there and what their needs are. And the doorkeeper who shows the spirit of leadership and provision will show that responsibility and fulfil it. And lastly, the doorkeeper has the responsibility for whatever standards by mutual consent may have been agreed on by that ecclesia as the protocol of behaviour or dress or conduct that is acceptable to the ecclesia in the house of God. And if there's a problem in any of those areas, then the doorkeeper may have to attend to the matter. Oh, you see, doorkeepers have a tremendous responsibility. And you know, not only should they arrive early so that all is done and all is organised before everyone else comes, but doorkeepers have to learn the spirit of everlasting patience. Because after most Christadelphian gatherings... There is an incredible capacity for discussion amongst the members that goes on and on and on and the doorkeeper must wait until the last talker has left the hall so that they can finally close the doors. But that's his work that day in the spirit of leadership and provision. You see, even the, it's all to do with our attitude, brothers and sisters, isn't it, as to what we make of it. We can either make it a little task, a mundane thing, or we can make it the spirit of our offering to the Father in the spirit of leadership and support. Now, what about sisters? So come back to the matter of prayers. Should sisters give prayers? Well, of course they should. It's just that they don't offer public prayers. But they certainly give private ones because, well, come and have a look at the first of Timothy again in chapter 5. So prayers now, this time for sisters. Should the sisters give prayers? In the first of Timothy in chapter 5, we're told this. 
It says in the fifth verse, Now she that is a widow indeed and desolate, trusteth in God and continueth in supplications and prayers day and night. So the definition of a godly widow is someone who continues in prayers, continues in prayers. In fact, you know in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 18 and verses 1 to 7, the Lord said that we ought always to pray and not to faint. And you know what the symbol is that the Lord gives in the Gospel of Luke for those that ought always to pray? It's a persistent widow, isn't it? As the symbol of everlasting prayer. Now here, the widow of of the first of Timothy 5 verse 5 is a sister in the meeting who continues in prayers all night. Do you think those prayers are for herself? Or would they be for others, do you think? And I think that the prayers of this sister are for others. And what might those prayers be that a sister ought to pray in private? Well, they could be entreaties for the wayward or for the weary in the ecclesia. They could be petitions for those in trouble or in trial. They could be prayers for the binding of the ecclesia that we might all grow and be nourished together. They might be prayers for the specific needs of individual members of the ecclesia who are struggling. They might be prayers for the family. They might be prayers for Israel. They might be prayers for Jerusalem. They might be prayers for those in the missionary fields. Prayers for correction. Is there any shortage of prayers that sisters need to pray? And the answer is, there's a whole host of prayers that ought to be offered by sisters. The fact that they don't offer public prayers doesn't change the fact that they must give prayers. And I believe that those private prayers are a vital contribution to ecclesial life. And do you know what the overwhelming spirit of all those prayers is, brothers and sisters? It's a spirit of nurture and support. That's the guiding spirit of those prayers, isn't it? That she prays after the spirit of nurture and support because that's her role in ecclesial life. Do you think those prayers are any less because they're offered in private? Do you think the Father sees them as of any lesser value because they're not offered publicly in the face and in the ears of the community as a whole? I think not brothers and sisters I think not so doorkeepers for men and suppers for women now you know in America you're not as civilised as we in New Zealand because after our lectures in the evening we have a a gathering and we have either tea and coffee and we have well various things on plates that, that can be consumed along with our conversation. It's probably a bad thing in some ways because it tends to make the discussions after meetings even longer than they already are. But, but can we have a look at John chapter 12? And I know I'm over time here, so let me just try and quickly finish with this idea and then a closing thought. John chapter 12, just a nice thought here, you see, because you remember the supper in the house of Lazarus?
So when I use the word suppers, what I really mean is the preparation of refreshment after meeting. So, so let me sort of use that expression, the, the provision of refreshments after meetings. Now in John 12 and verse 2 it says, There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. Martha served, says verse 2. Do you know that the, the root of that word in verse 2 when it says that Martha served, it's the Greek word diakonos. And that's the same word translated deacons. In the first of Timothy, concerning the service of brethren, in the first of Timothy, chapter 3, she was a deacon, brothers and sisters, because she offered her offering in the same spirit. It happened to be in the provision of refreshments, but it was no less a contribution. She was, as it were, a deacon in the ecclesia or a deaconess, but in a different role, in a different capacity, but the same spirit of giving. And so one of the things that we exhort our sisters on is, see, what tends to happen is this. They're asked to provide the refreshments. And so they forget to bring the milk and they forget to turn the hot water on and they don't get the cups out and the meeting concludes and nothing's ready and everyone comes up the back and, oh, we haven't done it yet. It was not organised. And they meant to bring a plate of food along. And what they don't, well, they forget to bring the food and so they bring a packet of biscuits instead. Now, by the way, I've got nothing against a packet of biscuits. I'm sure that some packets of biscuits are, are splendid. There are some brethren who, who promote packets of biscuits as being good. <laughs> but you see, I think that one of the things that a, sister's ought, a sister ought to do is, is the labours of her hands. That this is an offering for the truth. Now, it's a strange thing, you know, but in our ecclesia, if you put a plate of sandwiches out and a packet of biscuits out, guess which plate will disappear first, every time, without fail? <laughs> He's right, the sandwiches. <laughs> and you know that the sandwiches disappear first because for some reason people actually like savoury things, and yet sisters will continue to bring biscuits and never provide sandwiches. Do you know why they bring biscuits and not sandwiches? because it was easier. But that's not the spirit of nurture and support, is it? Even in such a menial task. You know, if a brother stood up every Sunday and said, well, look, I'm sorry, but I haven't had time to organise an exhortation, so I'm going to read out of a book. If a brother continued to do that after a while, we'd say, but, but, but you were meant to prepare something from the Word of God. That's your responsibility. You're the exhorting brother. You've got to prepare that. Well, so should a sister if he's not allowed to give a spiritual packet of biscuits? Why should she? It's a funny thing, you know, I gave this study, uh, brothers and sisters, in an ecclesia in Australia and um, exhorted all the sisters to faith and good works and plates of sandwiches. And, and by the way, I'll gladly eat either. It's, it's not to do with particularly what's on the plate here, is it? It's to do with making even what seems a menial task a gracious act of service done as well as it possibly could be in the spirit of nurture and support that the members are cared for. It's the spirit that we're talking about, isn't it? Not what's on the plate particularly. But having given this exhortation in a particular ecclesia, we got a phone call the week after on the Wednesday night after Bible class. And a sister rang me to say that um, they had just concluded the Bible class and that the, the, the supper table was groaning with food that there was pizzas and sandwiches and pies and so... And apparently all the brethren, the brothers were asking, could they please get that brother Lewis back to give further studies because they thought that his words were excellent. It's to do with the spirit, isn't it, of our service that we're talking here. Even the mundane things can be turned into an offering to the Father, whether it be opening the door for a brother or serving a cup of tea for a sister. One is the act of leadership and provision. The other is the spirit of nurture and support, but they're both needed. Let me close with one lovely thought. The first of Timothy, chapter 3 and verse 16. In the first of Timothy, chapter 3 and verse 16, it says this. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. 
Now most of you will know that at least to begin with, that's a reference to our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's more than the Lord, brothers and sisters. It's the, it's the ecclesia. It's the body of Christ. That God is manifest in the body of Christ. Do you know what's interesting about the first of Timothy, chapter 3 and verse 16? That this statement concerning God manifestation comes at the end of two chapters discussing the contribution of brothers and sisters in their respective roles in ecclesial life. Because that's where God manifestation is seen, brothers and sisters. In our respective contributions in ecclesial life, God manifestation is finally seen. Now just look at this and see how that outworks in the reality of ecclesial life. Man and woman bring to the ecclesia complementary skills. It is in the blending of these together in mutual activity that God manifestation is seen among us. Leadership and support, logic and intuition provision and nurture, strength and emotion, sacrifice and submission, judgment and sympathy, discipline and comfort, firmness and tenderness, direction and ministration, principle and practice. When we come together as brothers and sisters, and we balance together all those God-given qualities and we bring together equality, hierarchy, diversity, the character of the Father is seen amongst us and God is revealed. What a wondrous thought that is. How blessed we are to know his principles. Roger, we'd like to thank you for helping us to better understand principles guiding our lives as workers together in his ecclesia. We'll ask our brother Tim Lang to offer a closing prayer after we sing hymn number 309. Awake my soul and with the sun the daily stage of duty run. Shake off dull sloth and joyful rise to pay thy morning sacrifice. Hymn number 309.